your hope is too small. Your hope is not big enough. Go in peace. <laughs> hey, give me your job. Well, oh, you want more than that? Yeah. Okay, well, I can say more than that, but that's the word from the Lord this morning. The word is, write it down, your hope is too small. Your hope is too small. Now, I could explain more using like the Count of Monte Cristo. Has anyone watched that film or read the book? Yeah, okay, I could use that. I could use a Giants analogy, you know, football with the Vikings and the Giants and Tom Brady. I could do that, but I don't need to. I think that actually distracts from the word of the Lord this morning or this afternoon or whenever you're watching this. It's all there in that statement, your hope is too small. We're here at the conclusion of a sermon series called The Chronicles of the Kings, where we've walked from 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Kings and even delved a little into Chronicles. And we've looked at the rise and fall of kings and nations. We've looked at wisdom and folly. We've looked at good advisors and bad. We've looked at Davids and Absaloms. We've even looked at some of the prophetic voices. And now we arrive at the end in the book of Chronicles. And Chronicles is a fitting ending to this series uh, and to this section of books for a few uh, very specific reasons. First of all, Chronicles is a retelling of the books that we've already looked at, of Samuel and Kings. Uh, it, it takes the best moments of those books and highlights them while leaving out some of like, the more embarrassing parts for the characters. Uh, one resource that I looked at put it this way. So the Chronicler focuses heavily on David and Solomon to the tune of 29 chapters. And when discussing these rulers, the spotlight is on the triumphs rather than the respective failures of adultery and idolatry. And even in doing this, Chronicles does not whitewash history. Although it does deal more favorably with many of the kings uh, of Israel. For example, the wicked king Manasseh, who's often like used to describe the most like wicked person ever, uh, in, in 2 Kings 21 or in 2 Chronicles 33, he's listed, but only in Chronicles does it mention his repentance and that he turns back to God. So Chronicles gives this recap, but paints it in a positive light. We'll look at why. Secondly, the book of Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, you might be like, Dan, I looked in my Bible. It's not the last book in the Old Testament. You're right. It's not. But often when the Tanakh is put together, when the Hebrew Bible is put together, Chronicles comes at the end. And, you know, depending on which scholars you look at and who you read, there's different interpretations on why. But the reason this matters and the reason that this is interesting is because Chronicles event or details events that have already happened, right? It talks about the events of Second Sam, or Samuel and Kings, but it also is happening, it is written after the events of the prophets, after the return from exile, after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, after the temple is restored. And so Chronicles gives us a perspective on what we've gone through from the perspective of the future. It looks from the past back on these events and tells a story. And that leads us to the third reason that Chronicles is a fitting ending to this series. Not only does Chronicles retell where we've been, not only does it offer a conclusion of sorts, but Chronicles is all about hope. Chronicles is a book that is all about hope. 
in spite of the failures of the kings and the people, God offers hope. And let's look and see in the book of 2 Chronicles exactly how. If you'll turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the last of the chapters here in 2 Chronicles, you will see just what we're talking about. If we jump in at verse 11, it says this, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. We see this little tidbit here at the end of Chronicles showing the state of Israel, this nation that was supposed to be a light to all the others, that had the temple and the presence of the Lord, instead is pushing people away from God and is doing all the opposite things that they should. Even so, verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Chronicles tells the story of all these kings, even the ones we didn't have time to cover. That time and time again, things just kept getting worse instead of getting better. And God tried. He sent prophets. He sent words. He tried to turn his people back to him, but they continued to rebel. And so we get the verses that follow what happens Well, therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or aged. And he gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall in Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay destitute, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years." And so Chronicles ends with the state of the nation, right? It ends with the fact that you guys were so evil that we had to purge the land from you so it could enjoy rest from the evil where it was supposed to be good, where you are not serving the Lord. Instead, you had to be taken away. And we fast forward these 70 years, and in spite of all this, this is how Chronicles ends. Verse 22, now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people... May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. In spite of the unfaithfulness of his people, in spite of the state of his kingdom, 
and the injustice and the immorality even of the nations around in power, God still finds a way to provide hope at the conclusion here of 2 Chronicles. Here with Cyrus's proclamation is the start of God bringing back his people to Jerusalem, of rebuilding his temple. This is the hope of, of the book of Hebrews that isn't just a feeling but is a reality, that God really does what he promised. So I want to pause here and highlight that fact, that God delivers hope. God delivers hope. What the people didn't deserve, what Solomon prayed might happen when he built the temple, that even amidst the unfaithfulness of God's people, even in a foreign land, that happens, that God sees and hears and brings them back. God doesn't just give future promises. He delivers on those promises. His people return from exile, the temple is rebuilt, and Jerusalem is restored. That's what follows the events here at the end of Second Chronicles. And so again, I want to stop here, and before we go on, remind us all that God delivers on hope. That whatever it is is robbing you of hope today. Whatever it is that you're sitting on that is tugging at your spirit, the truth is that God can deliver hope in that moment. That whatever it is you're too afraid to hope for, or whatever it is that seems too heavy or too hard or too impossible, God can deliver hope in and through that experience. God promises a way forward, and he delivers on those promises. And we'll get further into hope, but I want you to remember that God always delivers that hope. And the question for you, the question I want you to ponder as we go forward is, do you believe that? Because I see in the book of Chronicles and in the book of Matthew and the book of Revelation a God who delivers on hope. And yet, why does Chronicles end like this? If you look at the end of the book of Chronicles, you'll see these words. Let him go up. It's kind of a weird way to end a book, right? It's Cyrus giving this proclamation of everyone go back to Jerusalem. But instead of details, instead of talking about what's going to happen, it ends kind of with this run-on idea of let him go. If you're going to go back, if anyone should, then go. Well, what's interesting that I hadn't realized before is that the book of Chronicles ends the exact same way that the book of Ezra begins. Uh, you can see it here. It is word for word, both in the Hebrew and in the translation in your Bibles. It ends the exact same way. Look it up if you don't believe me, but it's there. Now, there's a couple possible reasons why this may be true, right? It could be that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles were actually originally one scroll, one very long scroll that was cut up for various reasons. It could be, um, it could be a lot of different reasons. But the fact of the matter is that if we believe that the Scripture is God's Word, if we believe it is the only authoritative document for how we should live and how we should know God and what we should do, then we have to ask the question, why? Why does Chronicles end with this run-on idea and Ezra begin with those exact same words? If Chronicles is written after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah to a people who knows what's going to be written in those books, who know what's going to happen, 
then at some point when they're separated, why, why would they do it like this? If it's written to a people who know what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah, they know the struggle that they have to go through to rebuild the wall, to recover Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, then what is the purpose in a book ending like this? If they know they're going to live in the reality of, yes, a new temple, but a temple that's a shadow of what Solomon built with the original. Yes, they're going to return to Jerusalem as God's people from exile, but they're going to live in what turns out to be 400 years of silence from God's prophets. The ending of the book of 2 Chronicles tells us that God delivers on hope. He did deliver on the hope that people had. And the greater hope, the bigger hope, the hope of the Messiah, that was yet to come. While God delivered on the promise of returning them, the greater hope was still on its way. You know, I don't know for a fact why Chronicles ends like this. I don't know why it was decided to do that. But it feels to me like the author is saying, we're just getting started. He doesn't put parameters on what it looks like for God to fulfill this promise. Instead, he says, hey, even amidst all of the injustice, even amidst all of the sin, God is starting that seed of hope. He's doing something. It almost feels like that very beginning of Solomon's reign where everything is going right and everything feels good. It's almost like the beginning uh, of the first battle for the promised land where they're like, we can beat giants if the Lord is on our side. It almost feels like that moment the rain stopped and Noah lets out the bird and it comes back and then it doesn't. It's like that moment where God says, I'm going to fulfill what I promised. That's what the ending of Second Chronicles looks like. It looks like hope, but a hope without the parameters of our expectations. I wonder how many Israelites got to see the temple remade and the wall rebuilt, and they thought it was done. They thought they had got what they had hoped for. Because while that alone is amazing and is a testament to God's goodness and faithfulness, it certainly wasn't perfect. I mean, read the prophets, read Ezra and Nehemiah. Look at the struggle that it was for them to build even the wall around Jerusalem. And once it's done, imagine sitting in that place for 400 years asking, is this it? Are we, are we doing it? Are we the people of God? Is this the nation of God? Is God's presence at the temple? Is this all that it was supposed to be? Living with full knowledge of the failures of your people, the failures of your kings, the failures of the past that are written in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and in Chronicles, looking at the temple that is not what it was under Solomon. You know, I think it would be hard not to feel a little bit let down. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get what I've hoped for, that's how I feel, a little bit disappointed. Uh, Tom Brady, you know, there's got to be more than this when he first won, what was it, like three Super Bowls? I wonder if he feels, still feels that way after seven. <laughs> uh, or that feeling when you come back from camp and you're on that high, and then it's like a week later and you're like, what was that high again? Like, did it come with me? Or maybe like the, the first time, you know, you've been in that relationship where you're on like cloud nine and like nothing can go wrong. And you hit your first speed bump and you're like, is this right? Is this the way it's supposed to feel? Or when you land your dream job and you work it and you're like, this feels more like a job than a dream. 
or it's winning that championship your senior year and then realizing you might never play your sport again. You know, I could list a lot of things and a lot of moments where you get what you hoped for, and it's good. But the hope still leaves you a little disappointed. It can often be followed by questions. You have the elation of the moment, and then you ask, what's next? Was this it? Was it worth it? And did I do something wrong? I can imagine those 400 years between coming back from exile and the Bethlehem miracle, feeling a lot like that. I can imagine being in the temple courts and looking up at the temple and saying, God, is this it? Have you ever come home from church and asked that question? Have you ever prayed and said, God, is this it? Is this what Christianity is about? Is this what following you is all about? Is it just my weekly visit to church and trying not to sin? Is it guessing what you want me to do and what you don't? Is it just a ticket to heaven? Is it just a place that I give 10% of my money to? Is it just a feeling? Is this all that it's supposed to be? If you've ever felt like that, or if you feel like that right now, then I think I've got a word from the Lord for you. Your hope isn't big enough. The people of Israel were left, come back from exile, waiting for the second half of hope. They were waiting for the Messiah who would come and usher in the kingdom, the one who would put Israel back in its rightful place on top, which would come with all the blessings that it is to live under the rule of God. That's the expectation that Jesus Christ walked into 400 years later. That's the expectation that a baby in Bethlehem was supposed to fulfill. A lot of people felt let down when he didn't do that. He didn't overthrow Rome. He didn't make Israel wealthy. He didn't restore the temple to its former glory. And just like many in the first century, if your hope isn't big enough, then you're bound for disappointment. If your hope isn't big enough, then you're bound for disappointment. The Bible tells us that many went away from talking to Jesus sad because he didn't fit their expectation. He didn't give the expected answer for hope that they wanted. The rich young man found out he couldn't hold on to his wealth and follow Jesus and get wealthier. The Pharisees found out they couldn't hold on to their power and get even more by following this Messiah. Instead, tables were turned over in the temple, and tax collectors decided to give away the money that they had taken, and the poor were blessed, and the disabled were the ones who received the miraculous. The hope that Jesus brought and the hope that Jesus brings, it's bigger than what many in Israel were ready for. And I think the hope that Jesus brings is bigger than many of us listening now are ready for. Uh, I added a book recently to my reading list, a book called My Body is Not a Prayer Request by Dr. Amy Kenny. Uh, in this book, she argues that we learn from Jesus that disability can be more than what we think it is. It's not a blessing, but or it is a blessing, not a curse. It is something not to be prayed away, but a fountain through which God is able to bless us in a way that others cannot receive. 
I haven't read the book yet, but the idea has stuck with me. What if our hope is too small? What if in hoping for healing, we miss the chance to experience a greater blessing? What if in hoping for heaven, just getting there, we miss the chance for heaven to meet earth? What if in striving for clarity, we miss the opportunity to be unified with a diverse group of people in love and in the hope of Jesus? What if we could search amidst our disagreement and love and follow Jesus anyway? Is there something bigger for us? Romans chapter 5, verse 5, tells us this. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Friends, a hope that is big enough for the Holy Spirit does not and will not disappoint us. I don't know what you guys in this room or you joining us online hope for. Maybe a healthy marriage, healthy kids, good grades, a job you love, a full life, politicians that actually do what they say they'll do. And all those things, they can disappoint you. Even the best relationships have speed bumps. Some marriages fall apart. Even the healthiest kids get sick and some don't get better. Even good grades can fail you if you get one bad grade on a test that really matters. Even a full life has its share of sorrow and misery. Don't get me started on politicians, guys. I'm not ready tonight. What if Chronicles was written to remind us that God delivers on hope? Yeah, on the small hopes that he's promised, on, as James says it, every good and perfect gift that comes from above, on the blessings that come from following the commands of God and seeking Jesus. But what if it's about more than that? What if it's about the bigger hope? What if that run-on idea at the end of Chronicles points to Jesus, points to the hope that he offers, not just an empty tomb, but a resurrection from the dead, a resurrection for all of us, a resurrection that shows that heaven meets earth, that the glory of redemption and restoration can take the disappointment and the joy of all of our little hopes and wrap them up in something that's so much bigger, we can't even imagine a hope that big. What if that's what Second Chronicles points us to? What if that's what Jesus points us to? What if that is the hope of Revelation? What if it's pointing to the upside-down kingdom of God that's big enough for our trials and our traumas and our blessings and our fears all to be swallowed up in a hope that doesn't disappoint. If your hope isn't that big, then it's too small. And maybe you, like me, need a bigger hope. Friends, we need a hope that is bigger. We need a bigger hope. I need a bigger hope because I get stuck in these moments where either I'm disappointed getting the hope that I had or I'm frustrated that I didn't get it and I'm caught in suffering and I don't always have a hope that is big enough to get me through it. 
You know, a pastor friend of mine uh, was telling me about a friend that he was visiting on one of his pastoral care visits. This friend had been having a, a rough time with some medical stuff, and he had some really hard days ahead of him. And amidst the knowledge of what was ahead and his current reality, the man that he was visiting said these words. From now on, I'm just going to thank Jesus that he walks with me, regardless of what lies ahead. Do you have that kind of hope? Do you trust Jesus to deliver big enough to blow away your expectations? And do you have hope that he's going to walk with you and sustain you and give meaning to the suffering that you're in, the suffering you didn't hope for? Do you have the kind of hope that whatever the circumstance, you can give thanks because the Messiah, the Savior, the one who has wounds in his side and in his hands, in his resurrected body, is there with you and can take those wounds and create a hope that is big enough for them, that is bigger than we can understand. If it was up to me, I would have picked a body without those wounds, but Jesus kept them, and my hope isn't big enough to understand that yet. I need a bigger hope. Friends, I believe that Jesus can provide us a hope that leads us to something that won't disappoint us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus won't disappoint you? Because that's the truth. Jesus won't disappoint you. He won't fail to deliver on what he's promised. And if he doesn't meet our expectations, it's because he has a bigger hope in mind. Those who were waiting for the Messiah to come and fulfill their expectations, they had to lose out on those expectations. They had to lose out on that hope. Sometimes we have to lose hope to get a bigger hope. It hurts to give up good things, even if there's a promise of something better ahead. We have to go through the pain of losing some of the old to get to the hope and the joy of the new. I don't know what hopes you guys are holding on to tightly in this room or online. I don't know what hopes you need to lose so that Jesus can replace them with something bigger but that is the challenge ahead of us. I don't know what good things you hope for that are keeping you from experiencing a bigger thing, but I know that if you're willing to give your hopes to Jesus, that he won't disappoint you. If you fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, that he won't let you down. The hope he is leading us towards is one that encompasses both the Garden of Eden that initial place, and all of the sorrow and suffering and things that we go through along the way and takes them both and gets us to something even better. I think the nation of Israel was saying, man, maybe when we come back from exile, we'll get something that's a little bit better than what we had. And God said, no, I want to give you something that blows away anything you've ever seen. That's how big the hope I have to offer is. There is meaning in every moment when we walk with Jesus. So I want to take a moment right now and invite us to make room for the hope that is so much bigger than the hope that we have. If you would, whether you're joining us in this room or online, just close your eyes for a moment and pray with me. Before we launch into that prayer, I want you to spend a second with God and say, God, what am I holding on to? What hope do I have? What expectations for you do I need to let go so that you can give me a bigger hope? A hope that is the size 
that you have to offer. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal to us the hopes that we have that are too small, the hopes that we have that are holding us back from experiencing the true kingdom of God. Lord, increase our vision. Help us to see and keep our eyes on the hope that you see. And when we can't see that far, help us to just say, Jesus, I'll follow you and trust that you will take us there, whether we're in joy or in suffering, because there is a new hope and a greater hope to come. Lord, may we make room for you and what you want to do. In Christ's name, amen.